Hello, and welcome to the History of India podcast. This is Series 5, Episode 6, Those Who Live on Campaign... I've always wanted to die unsatisfied. Which sounds odd when you first hear it. When you think about it, though, it it makes a bit of sense. I think of my heroes, Martin Luther King, who wanted equality for black people and white people, law and in practice. He died before he saw the promised land. Or Nelson Mandela, who wanted to heal South Africa. People like that did so much, partly because they set their sights high, because they weren't satisfied with the world being rotten. And you could go on and think about your heroes, perhaps. By the by, I also think that I want to die with a a bad reputation, because the people I most admire are the people who give up on their reputation too. They give away everything they can to make the world a better place. And because... People who give up their good reputation to help others are not generally well-liked after they're dead. They're the sort of heroes I'd be ashamed to admit to have. So, one thought of my life has been to want to die unsatisfied. But on the other hand, I've never wanted to be so committed to my work that it takes my life. You know, I don't want to be the sort of person who works so hard that When they retire, they die pretty soon afterwards. And those two ideas that want to die unsatisfied, still working, and that I want to be not so committed to my work that it takes my life, those two ideas are in conflict. But what's the point of all of this self-indulgent talk? Yeah, something about... Indian kings living on campaign and dying on them. Last week, we met Lalit Aditya, and he was a man who, if anyone was, was devoted to his work. His work was conquering. As he said, rivers may meet the sea, but conquerors like me, we go on without any end. Lalit Aditya was, of course, quite wrong. Conquerors do have an end. He's not still around conquering. And in this episode, we'll follow him from where we left him in the last episode after his first major conquest, all the way to the end of his story. Ready? Let's go. In centuries gone by, Kashmir had been home to thriving Buddhist communities. I mean, the fourth Buddhist council had been there. The great Buddhist thinker Nagarjuna had lived there, or maybe, at the very least, some of his important followers did. But now, in the time of this episode, the 700s AD, Buddhism had all but disappeared from Kashmir. The monuments were still there, your stupas, your monasteries, and so forth. In fact, they were still being built, still being funded by the royal family of Kashmir. But nowadays, they were quiet almost empty. Because by the 700s, most of the people living in Kashmir followed Brahminical orthodoxy, in particular Vaishnavism or Shaivism. It became a centre of Brahminical thought, so much so that 
that actually entered into what people called Kashmir. The Tibetans called it Polomenti, which, at least if you pronounced it correctly, would mean land of the Brahmins. Polomen means Brahmin. It was the centre of, of many of the, the new ideas of Shaivism that went across the rest of India. And that shift from Buddhism to Brahminical orthodoxy, or from kind of multiple religions to Brahminical orthodoxy, it changed the fabric of Kashmiri society in a very obvious way. I mean, there were just many more priests and, and sages and scholars around. But society was changing in other ways too in this period, the early medieval period. There had been a, a tribe of farmers who had managed to gain economic security. They had owned land in the fertile areas of the Kashmir Valley. And because they owned it, over time they became rich and powerful. So powerful, so rich, that they started marrying into the royal family even. They formed a new economic class called the Dhammaras. Very roughly the landed gentry, although more recently rich. This was a class where there was no counterpart elsewhere in India. And they have a bad reputation. They're described as having boorish habits, being boastful, also being cowardly. More happy living in their little stronghold houses, building up their piles of gold, safely surrounded by their home fields, with their, their most troubling concern, oh, which corner of my field shall I bury all my money in? These two classes, the priests and, and the landowners, often came into dispute, which is natural enough. A Brahmin might argue that the economic produce of a certain village had been granted to them indefinitely. A landowner might take issue with this idea because he wants the, the product of his own fields. The Brahmin, in retaliation, might go into a sort of fast of protest, and, well, the debate would go on. These sorts of disputes started causing so much trouble that in the 12th century, the chronicler of Kashmir said, don't ever give farmers more than they need to survive. If you give them more than the minimum, they'll get rich, and in the space of a year, they'll become a, a landowner, and then they won't obey the king. That's pretty messed up. Recommending that your own people fall into extreme poverty just to keep them down, to stop any trouble coming up. Though it's somewhat easier to understand the historian when you learn that by his time, the 12th century, the landowning class had taken over almost all of the Kashmir Valley other than the area around the capital city. And the kings of Kashmir by that time were having to send out their soldiers to beat up rich landowners, beating them back into obedience. The kingdom of Kashmir, once so great the centre of an empire, was having its strength sapped by the system, or so it seemed to that chronicler. Even back in the time of this episode, around, say, 724 AD, the landowning class and the monks could be a source of difficulty, especially if you were a king of Kashmir, and especially if you were a king who wanted to conquer the, the whole world. After all, the landowners and the monks being there meant that a good portion 
of your people had their hands busy running fields or doing religious works and weren't really interested in joining an army to conquer the known world. Well, as it happens, in around 724 AD, Lalit was king of Kashmir, and as it happens, he wanted to conquer the world. He quickly realised that he needed more people. The people living in the Kashmir Valley just wouldn't be a big enough pool. Fortunately, Kashmir was a land which attracted adventurers. The Kushans had come there. Greeks, and more recently Byzantines fleeing Arab invaders to the west. And maybe also Persians fleeing the collapse of the Sasanian Empire. And Turks and other Central Asians roaming far from their lands on the banks of the River Oxus. And Lalit Aditya drew much of his army from this pool of adventurers. Even his general, it seems. His general had the name General, well, a Turkish version of the Chinese name for General, which kind of indicates that he'd been around a bit and picked up this nickname, and he must have been travelling in Central Asia and fighting for the Chinese or, or something like that. And the soldiers were also drawn from this sort of class, largely from people in the Punjab, part of which had been controlled by Kashmir since Lalit Aditya's grandfather's time. Also soldiers drawn from Afghanistan, from Kabul Valley, and from Central Asia, and from the Darad people living in the hills. The army, some historians speculate, was actually trained by the Chinese Empire. Lalit Aditya, like his predecessors, had, had sent off emissaries to China asking for an army, asking for 200,000 Chinese soldiers. None of them came. Instead, the ambassador he'd sent to China got 500 rolls of silk and he got to dine in a banquet in the inner palace of the emperor, which is probably a big deal in the Chinese court, but all of that silk and those dining rights, probably not that helpful in building up a big army. But the Chinese might also have sent tacticians to help Lalit Aditya reorganise his army, to mould it on a modern force and use the latest technology, Sasanian-style heavy cavalry. So this was the army led by this Turkish general. And the modern formation and the modern techniques would be tremendously useful. The army managed to wipe out the much larger army of the Emperor of North India, Yashovarman. Heard about that in the last episode. And the army after that carried on down the Ganga towards the coast, into Bengal, capturing Yashovarman's lands and making them Lalit Aditya's. After Yashovarman had taken his army to the east coast of India... He played around in some islands for a while, and then he took his army south. There's a charming story about why he headed south. At the time, the Chaulokian Empire was supreme south of the Vindias. It wouldn't be supreme for long, though, because one of their tributary states, the Rashtrakutas, was starting to cause trouble. Soon, they would get too big for their boots, and we're going to hear much more from them in the rest of the series. Already, though, their toes must have been cramped up against the edge of the boot, 
because they were getting quite cheeky. They did what is a pretty outrageous thing. There was a Chowlockian princess called Bhavagana, princess of the Rashtrakuta overlords. And the Rashtrakuta king, a mere tributary, went and kidnapped her and married her. So the new queen of the Rashtrakutas was unwilling. In 735 AD, her husband, Indra I, died. Finally, the queen had an opportunity to send for help. She sent messages off, and one arrived at the court of Lanasaditya. Never one to turn down an opportunity for a bit of a fight, Lanasaditya responded and took his army south. He freed the princess, restored her to her people, the Chaulokias of Karnataka. And then Lanasaditya rested his soldiers on the banks of the river, drinking coconut juice, and genuinely feeling great about their whole hero rescue of the damsel in distress thing. When they left to go back north, Lanasaditya made all the people of the south wear these tails that were tied onto their clothing, dragging behind them to remind them that they were beaten and inferior and that Lanasaditya was all round just a better bloke. Mm, no. No, not quite. Some of that story is real. Mavagana was a real woman. She really was a Chalokian princess, and she really was queen of the Rashtrakutas. She may even have ruled effectively for a time after her husband died and before her son can take the throne properly for himself. Though, it's a real stretch from there to say that she ruled all of South India up to the Vindhyas supreme. At most, she was kind of ruling a tiny fraction of it, far away from the Vindhyan mountains. The story is partly an invention of the modern mind, a projection of our expectations. First, this talk about kidnapping and forced marriage. Our source says there was a Rakshasa marriage, which is a kidnapping marriage of a sort, but quite likely not what modern folk would imagine. There was a ritual about it. You had to go in a chariot, and you had to challenge and beat anyone who tried to stop you. Then you would pick up the woman and you would ride away, if you were the groom. But it's not necessarily a sort of confrontation. Some look at this ritual as a way for Shastriyas to get married without having to ask for any gift, without having to ask for anyone's daughter's hand to marry. It's quite possible that in many cases, maybe most cases, this kidnapping was entirely arranged and everyone from the groom to the bride to the parents were entirely happy with it. In fact, that matches a great many of our stories. It's a sort of arranged eloping. Now, it's not to say that Rakshasa marriages were a good thing always or even ever. They weren't thought to be a particularly good thing in those times either. And of course, full-on kidnapping and forced marriages almost certainly happened. They weren't considered Rakshasa marriages, though. They were, they were something much worse. They were considered, as they are, straightforward rape. Probably, though, this marriage wasn't of the forced kind. As one modern historian puts it, obviously the, the Chalokians of Badami 
would have had the power and the will to react forcibly against the Rashtrakutas if it really was the case that they had forcibly abducted a princess. After all, they were still subservient and fairly weak. And anyway, we know from inscriptions that this supposedly reluctant queen wasn't desperate to get back to her, her Chalokian lands. In fact, she seems to have been thriving as queen of the Rashtrakutas. She arranged to donate a gift to every single village in the Rashtrakuta heartlands. She seems to have really cared about the Rashtrakutas. And she got her son on the throne. And honestly, this princess probably has nothing to do with Lalitaditya. The texts which talk about Lalitaditya going south say very simply, A beautiful Karnati lady named Rati, who ruled supreme in the south, her territories extending as far as the Vindhya hills, also submitted to him, Lalitaditya. The army then rested on the banks of the cavalry, beneath the palm trees, drinking the water of coconuts. And that's it. That's all any of our sources have to say. There's no mention there of a Rakshasa marriage or Rashtrakutas. There's no one called Bhavagana or, or anything like it. So, although this is a great story, it's probably a modern projection. It does fit suspiciously closely to our rescue the damsel in distress type of story that we're used to. But here's the thing. It's not just modern people who impose their expectations on history. People from the past are just as bad at it. The story of Lanataditya comes from a serious chronicle, a serious history book from the 12th century called the Raja Tarangini, the, the Stream of Kings. We talked about it last episode. But in this section, where it describes the journey of Lanataditya around India, it's kind of familiar. A very similar journey is supposed to have been taken by Yashovarman, the emperor Lalitaditya had just conquered. Yashovarman is also supposed to have gone south and conquered there, and they're even supposed to have passed almost exactly the same way back north, through Gujarat, across the Tar Desert, up to the Himalayas. And all of it's rather, well, implausible in the details at least. They're supposed to have passed through firmly established kingdoms, and those kingdoms were powerful and really not going to take some invading person coming across their borders. They're also kingdoms with reasonably good records that have come down to us. Those records probably would have noticed if there were two North Indian kings charging through the kingdom just a few years apart, but there's no mention of North Indian kings in this period in the records of the Southern Indian kingdoms. And, for that matter, the Southern kingdoms aren't mentioned in the records of the North Indian kings. It's almost as if the North Indian kings' journeys carving around India didn't really happen. And that might be for the simple reason that actually they didn't happen. It might be that the ancient historians or the medieval historians were really just imposing their own expectations. There was this idea of the universal conqueror bringing all of India into their orbit, receiving tribute from all kings. And a universal conqueror goes on a digvijaya, 
go around India conquering everyone. Samudragupta, the great conquering Gupta empire, claimed himself to have done this. And that's quite plausible. But the idea was traced back by ancient Indians to prehistory. The Gupta-era poet Kalidasa wrote a poem called the Raghuvamsa, telling of the legendary ancestor of Ram. And in the poem, Raghu, the ancestor, traces that same path around India, goes on that Digvijaya, following that same trip over to the east coast and then down to the south and then round and then back up to the Himalayas. In fact, the words in that poem used to describe his conquest as he, as he carved round to the south of India They're almost exactly the same as the words used to describe Lalita Ditya's conquest as he carved around to the south of India. So this journey, this trip south, is it's a sort of meme. It's a set story, something ready to be imposed on history. It's expected. It doesn't mean that Lalita Ditya didn't go south. And, and some historians think it's perfectly possible. Others think it's completely impossible Either way, though, the story as it's come to us is seen through this lens of the traditional Indian way of becoming a, a, an emperor. And the lens will have distorted matters. We catch up with Lalas Aditya again when he's back in North India. He's heading home. By the time he picks up the road into the Kashmir Valley, he's already in his own kingdom. In the Punjab still, but in part of the King Punjab that's been owned since his grandfather's time by the kings of Kashmir. He's in the town of Babrahan, modern-day Pakistan. Ahead and around 30 kilometers to the left, the Indus comes down out of the mountains. Ahead and over to the right, the Jhelum, another river, comes down out of the mountains. Those are two of the five great rivers of the Punjab, the land of five rivers. And Lalitaditya, on his journey home, would have headed towards the mountains, veering right. The road met with the Jhelum River at the place where it's joined by a couple of other rivers. And there, there's a bridge. Lalitaditya would have crossed over. Five days' journey uphill alongside the Jhelum. Most likely, plenty of people took river ferries on this part of the journey, but whether there was space for the king's army with their heavy cavalry, we don't know. The path then came to a ravine, where the river cut through the hills. Likely the water here became too shallow for the required ferries. And it was a long journey, five days travel through the ravine, winding, with the hills coming increasingly high on either side, until there were slopes which were often too steep even for, for trees, with only the occasional patch of grass on the barren slopes. Up, five days, until at last the ravine opened and flattened out onto a high, cold valley. Two more days' travel along the river, and Lalita Ditya would have come to the royal residence, modern Srinagar. Lalita Ditya, after his long journey around India, was home. My guess is that he wasn't happy to be there. 
partly because he didn't seem to like being home generally. Once he went out on campaign, he was gone a long time. He sent no news back to the Kashmir Valley, so his advisers got concerned. They sent out a message. Where are you? What's going on? Are you okay? When are you coming back? And he just sent a simple message in reply saying, Why should I go back home when I've got places to conquer? But on this occasion, there was special reason for Lala Saditya to not be happy being home. Whilst he'd been away, there'd been trouble in the Kashmir Valley. Tibet had grown increasingly powerful over the previous decades. Most of Tibet's power and energy had been spent in a wrestling match with the Chinese to the north. The Chinese, the Tang Emperor, had expanded into the Tarim Basin. The Chinese had even at one point made the Kingdom of Kabul and Swat protectorates of China. But not for long, because pretty soon after that, the Tibetans stormed into the Tarim Basin, and that cut the Chinese off from their newly acquired protectorates. This struggle between China and Tibet had been going back and forth for 60 years now. Recently, though, the Tibetan Empire had turned itself southwards towards Kashmir. They hadn't made it into the valley just yet, but they'd invaded lands to the north and east of the valley, including uh, the area on which the road to China was, Ladakh, now a region in the Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir. Well, now that Lalit Aditya was back, he had to deal with the problem. And Lalit Aditya had experienced dealing with this very problem because he had kept Tibetans away from all of the major routes into India hitherto. But in the past, he hadn't had to do this alone. He'd had help. An alliance with the Emperor of North India, who was presumably Yashovarman. But that was the same Emperor of North India that Ladisaditya had just beaten. So the alliance was pretty much over, and there would be no help from here on out. Lalataditya was going to have to sort out the problem, clear the road on his own. And that's exactly what he did. There's this sort of awkward and slightly chilling passage in the 12th century chronicles, where Tibetans are described as having placid white faces, which show no anxiety. And they, that seems to be because... For Kashmiris of that time, Tibetans were just not around much. And they weren't around because Lalit Aditya was so tremendously successful at pushing them out of the area. And this is not according to Lalit Aditya or any Kashmiri source. This is according to an independent source, an Arab ambassador to the Chinese. Lalit Aditya beat them out of Ladakh, but not just there. He pushed them further, north, into the Tarim Basin. He seems to have actually conquered towns in the Tarim Basin, the rich towns of the Silk Road, including a place familiar from an early episode, Kutcha. And then he took his army well beyond that, to the west, taking over land in Central Asia, all the way up to next to the River Oxus. And on this great conquest to the north, wherever he conquered, he tried to pick up the best quality horses he could for his new Sasanian-style heavy cavalry. 
he would take them wherever he could get them. The jet black horses of Cambodia, or the famous war horses of Central Asia. When Lamataditya came back to the Kashmir Valley at last, he had established a sizable empire, much of it outside of India. Strong connections were made in Central Asia, and Turkish kings started to pour money into the Kashmir Valley, building monuments there. There's a great story about another of his attempted conquests nearer to his homeland. It's said that one day, at the foot of Lanasaditya's elephant, appeared a man, and he was looking worse for the wear. His nose was broken and bloody. His face was all scratched up. He'd suffered a recent beating. So Lalasaditya asked, "Who, who are you?" "I was the the minister of the king of Sindhu," said the beaten-up man. "I advised him to submit to you, Lalasaditya, and he didn't like the advice, so he beat me." Lalasaditya. Made sure that the, the, the poor ex-advisor to the king of Sindhu was given the best doctors, and he was nursed to recovery. But he said that all he wanted was revenge. So he came after he was better to Lalitaditya's throne room, and he said, "Look, I'm going to help you beat the king of Sindh. There's a shortcut to the land of Sindh." Instead of taking three months, it'll only take you around fifteen days, and that will ensure that you'll catch the king unawares. He doesn't know about this shortcut. He will still be relaxing, and you can kill him before he even knows what's up. The only thing is, this road is very dry. You're going to need to bring your own water. So, come with fifteen days of water, and I'll show you the road. Just follow me. So, the army prepared. And they got fifteen days of water, and they followed this ex-minister. The ex-minister led them into a desert, as he had promised. There was no sign of water there. They marched for fifteen days. It was the sort of deeply boring march that you can never really express in a story, or at least not an interesting story. But after fifteen days of it, they ran out of water. The kingdom of Sindh was still nowhere in sight. Say, where, where is, where is this kingdom we're supposed to be invading, ex-minister? Don't worry, don't worry. Just follow me. Just one or two more days. Another day passed. No water. Another day passed in the desert. Still no water, and still no kingdom of Sindh. Now look here, minister. You told us there would be fifteen days of marching, and we'd come across the kingdom, and we'd capture the king unawares. It's nowhere to be seen. Ah, yes," said the minister. "Well, we're all doomed. There's no water anywhere near here. Nothing can save you now, nor me. We're all going to die right here, and I'm happy." I gave up my life gladly for my master, the King of Sindh. Yep, I've always been his. I tricked you into coming here and dying because I knew you were going to conquer him. I was happy. I am happy to give up my life for him. The whole army heard this, and they were desperate, howling. 
But the king was calm. King Lanzaditia took a spear and he plunged it into the sand. And where he plunged it, water gushed out in a river. And a river of enough water that the entire army fed there first. They even let the ex-minister drink a little and he stumbled off home to the king of Sindh, where he died shortly afterwards. Meanwhile, Lanasaditu and his army retreated from the desert and they lived to fight another day. And there you have it, the story of Lalasaditya's conquests. What? Ah, some listeners might be expecting some other stories of other conquests. Lalasaditya is pretty famous, in Kashmir at least, and plenty of people might be saying that I've missed a vital part of the story, the part where Lalasaditya faces the Arab menace pleas for help from the Chinese, doesn't get any, but beats back the Arabs on his own. Well, this is, this is kind of awkward. There might have been some conflict between Arabs and Lanasaditya. Arab forces had come into India, come up right to the edge of the territory which Lalataditya held. Not Kashmir Valley itself, but at least in the Punjab. And there they'd stopped. Maybe Lalataditya had beaten them back. But at least something else was going on too. Because all across the world, Arab expansion had slowed to a crawl or, or stopped entirely. There had been a change in internal politics. One caliphate, the, the Umayyad caliphate, had come to an end, and another caliphate, the Abbasid caliphate, had come to power, powered by, by Persian and, and Sufi interests, although it quickly came into conflict with them. It's a long and brilliant story. It's happening in the background during Lalasaditya's reign, and it had an impact on what was going on in West India. A direct impact so the Arab commander who had conquered those parts of India, the Multan and the Sindh, he had been a staunch supporter of the old caliphate. So when the new caliphate came along, they did the obvious thing and had him killed. And that loosened control on the area for a bit. Not for that long. The first great Abbasid caliph, Al-Mansur, came into power in Baghdad in the last few years of Lalataditya's life. And he had a governor he appointed for that little corner of India he controlled. And that governor is said to have invaded Kashmir and taken many prisoners of war as slaves. So there was conflict, although that wasn't in the Kashmir Valley. That was in, in the areas of the Punjab under Kashmir control. There was conflict then between Kashmir and the Arabs. But there's a good chance it was after Lalasaditya had died. Is there any positive evidence that Lalataditya had fought with the Arabs? Well, maybe. If you're willing to play weird word games. Historians of a certain sort try to look for Hindu kings in this period fighting Arab invaders. And they often interpret the evidence to come out for that result. The impulse is pretty easy to understand. Ah, oh, we want a hero defending the homeland. It makes a lot of sense, particularly if you're a historian who's fought for the homeland against British colonialists. 
nationalist Indian historians, perhaps, but also plenty of Western historians take this line too. But this impulse to find a Hindu king fighting against the Arabs, it sometimes gets indulged to excess. And then it gets embarrassing. For a while, historians thought that Lalas Aditya's general must have been a Muslim, captured or, or bribed into joining Lalas Aditya's side. That's because his name was Chankunya, which isn't a Sanskrit name really, or a Prakrit name, it's not an Indian name. And it sounds kind of Arab, I guess. But then someone who managed to speak Chinese came along and looked at it and said, no, no, that's, that's just the Chinese word for general written in Sanskrit. And that sort of thing, this sort of, oh, that sounds like an Arab word, so they're probably being Arab. That sort of thing goes on quite a lot. For example, Lalas Aditya is said to have defeated the Desari and fought someone called Mamuni. So, a historian might say that, oh, Mamuni, that's got to be Amir ul Mumenin, which means commander of the faithful in Arabic, so that's presumably a Muslim ruler. That's a bit of a stretch, though. Mamuni to Amir ul Mumenin. And anyway, the name Mamuni is actually an Indian name. It's used by a later king on the east coast, on the west coast of India. So the whole. Lalas Aditya fought the Arabs thing. Well, the evidence for it is thin. There's no clear evidence of any significant battle between Lalas Aditya and the Arabs in the ancient or medieval sources, but it's perfectly plausible there was something going on. If you're looking for it, you can see a face in then their clouds. So, at last... Lalas Aditya was home and safe, emperor of a large empire stretching down the Ganga, perhaps up to Central Asia, along the Silk Road, with the Kashmir Valley at the centre of this great empire. And the Kashmir Valley enjoyed the benefits of being at the centre of a great empire, namely an awful lot of money. Kashmiri coins have been found all over the place, even before Lalas Aditya's dynasty came along. Kashmir, for a long time, had been a great place for trading. 16,448 coins of a Kashmiri king of an earlier dynasty had been, had been found as far away as Uttar Pradesh. A huge number of coins, well outside the mountain stronghold of Kashmir. Demonstrates a really strong trade. And there are many more finds of coins which are less huge. In the time of Lalas Aditya's dynasty, the coins started to get better. Previously, there'd just been copper. There's copper in Kashmir. Now, they became mixed with gold or silver. Now, there's no source of gold in the Kashmir Valley, no gold mines. Instead, this gold was pouring into the valley from outside, from Tibet, which had sources of its own, from Central Asia, and gold from India too. And the coins in Lalas Aditya's time became standardised. Fixed weight, fixed shape, that was unchanged for an awful long time afterwards. And that was because in Kashmir, trade was thriving. And the many traders who came through needed a fixed standard of good coin. 
With this economic power, Lana Sadija started a building project. He built a new capital for himself, 20 kilometers away from the old capital, the old residence, to the north and west of there. He called it Paheraspura, which has a charming meaning. It means something like city of merriment. And if a new capital city is not enough, well, he also built large temples in it. One was for the sun god. Worship of the sun was kind of old-fashioned then, mostly found in the aristocracy. You might remember that Harsha Vardhana's father worshipped the sun. It was probably foreign. It was probably from Persia, though now, and perhaps then, it was given an Indian name, worship of Surya. The temple that Lala Saditya built has a similar mix of Indian and, and foreign. I mean, viewed from one angle, it, it's just a post-Gupta era temple. And the art, what's left of it after a, a later Muslim iconoclast destroyed lots of it, the art's Gandharan art, that's an Indian style. But it's just utterly unlike any Hindu temple you'll see elsewhere. It incorporates all these architectural features and details which just aren't reminiscent of anything else you've seen. There are great big windows with, with lintels that are from Roman Syria. There are these arches and, and domes which are Byzantine. And the whole sense of the thing gives you something of the feel of, of the cathedral. This, I'm too small for this. this. This building is a huge monolithic thing. That's a new sort of feeling. And in fact, lots of the architecture seems to be copied directly from Byzantine and Roman architecture. It's quite possible that Byzantine architects had fled Arab invasions a few decades earlier and made their way to Kashmir. And now they were being employed by the king to build a new style of temple. Doric pillars, Corinthian pilasters, cements and dowels used in ways that they hadn't been used before in India. I'd love to go. I've not managed to see it yet. Apparently, it's falling apart a bit, more or less unprotected. Lalitaditya built other temples too. One to Vishnu. Silver and gold images inside. Sadly, lost to us now. A large site dedicated to Buddhism. A courtyard, a monastery, a prayer hall. A huge brass image of Buddha. 84,000 coins melted down for it. And it wasn't just Lanas Aditya who got into this temple-building craze. His queen and his ministers did it too. And Lanas Aditya, even after all that, wasn't done building. He built other cities. There was the City of Certainty. He built that before an expedition because he was so certain of victory. There was the City of Pride. He built that after it, after the campaign, because he was so proud of his victory. And there was the City of Fruit, built with the riches he had gained from the conquest. Now, the story of Lalitaditya's building can sound a little bit fanciful in places. So there's this story that Lalitaditya conquered a kingdom populated entirely by women. Their queen came out 
to him quivering, of course, with fear or desire. It's legendary, something a little like the Amazons of the Greeks, I suppose. And Lanasadicha is said to have built a temple with a levitating image of Vishnu in his lion avatar in it, suspended between two magnetic stones. Technically possible, maybe. Not sure. Pretty implausible. But there are enough ruins left around to be certain that Lalitaditya was putting his newfound wealth into a big building project. He was utterly devoted to building, and building temples in particular. For him, it's almost as if that's what religion was about. The story goes that one day the king was breaking in a new horse, so he rode the horse out to a forest, and there, in the middle of this deserted forest, he heard the sound of singing. He went to investigate, and he saw two women, one singing and the other dancing. He watched them a while, and then he went away, and he came back the next day, same time, same place, and again they were there, one woman singing, one woman dancing. He came back the next day, again they were there. Finally, he asked, where are you from? What are you doing here? And they said, ah, we're from that temple just over there. Uh, We're just here to sing and dance in praise of God. Uh, But the temple, you can't see it. It's invisible. I don't know why. It just is. Lalasaditya looked over to where they were pointing. And if there was any temple there, it was indeed invisible. He came back the next day. But this time he came with a team of diggers. He pointed out the place where the temple was supposed to be and instructed them to dig. Down they went, into the soil. Finally, they unearthed an old temple. Damaged, door still locked. They broke in. They found images of a god and an inscription saying that this temple had been built by Rama and Lakshmana. A tremendous find. Lanataditya and his queen built a new temple alongside the old one for the images of the god to dwell. This focus on building grand temples for the gods, not just to show your own greatness like the Kushans did, not to show how generous you were to a religious community as had been done for centuries across India, This building of temples as an act of personal devotion was a little bit new. What was going on? The answer is in a book written in Kashmir about the time of Lalitaditya. It's called the Vishnu Dhamotara Purana. And it's full of wonderful things. Everything from tips on how to paint, to how to put on a play, to how to build a temple. And the latter bit was especially relevant to Lanasaditya, because the idea seems to have been that a king should go on many conquests. He should become a universal conqueror, in fact, and that would generate enough riches to build a huge temple good enough to be a home for God on earth. This was really quite a radical shift if you were a king. 
No longer was God to be worshipped wherever you were by constructing a fire and a temple out of brick, as in the old Vedic texts. In the old days, the grandest ceremony for emperors was sacrificing a horse which had wandered around India with an army at its back. But the sacrificial place was just a post and a fire and, and various other things laid out precisely. It wasn't a permanent site. But in this new way of worshipping, kings were to build a temple, and then they were to conduct an elaborate and expensive ceremony inducting God to his new house. And this ceremony, Sura Pratista, the fixing of the divine abode, replaced the old Ashvameda, the, the horse sacrifice, as the ultimate sign of being an emperor. These new ideas were around back when Lalitaditya's brothers had been ruling, but he was the first of his dynasty to rule for long enough and to conquer enough to bring these ideas to reality, to make them into concrete and stone and brass and gold. Lalitaditya lived for military campaigns. According to a story, he was soon off again into the hilly country. And there, unseasonable snows fell down. The army got stuck and it was defeated either by the cold or by enemies. In utter misery, Lalitaditya took his generals up with him onto a pyre and they all burnt themselves to death. Lalitaditya had spent almost all of the 36 years of his reign on military campaign, down the Ganga, maybe to the south, up to the Taran Basin, across to Central Asia, never satisfied. He went into the mountains one last time. It seems that those who live on campaign die on it too. But though Lalitaditya had poured his entire life pretty much into conquest, he didn't have that much to show for it. The new lands he had added to the kingdom of Kashmir, they left it after his death. In fact, from this point on, the kingdom would shrink back and back until all it controlled was the valley, the mountain stronghold that his, his grandfather had started with. Only 91 years after Lalitaditya's death, when he had ruled much of North India and outside of it too, the kingdom of Kashmir became a footnote. It was called a minor kingdom, only a small dominion. For all his ambitions to conquer the entire world and to bring its wealth to build a house fit for a god, Lanasaditya never managed to build an empire that lasted longer than he did. Every week we read something from the original sources. And this week, I thought we'd read from that great book written about Lanasaditya's time, which talks about temples, the Vishnu Dharmatara Purana. It's a dialogue between a king called Vajra and a sage, Markandya. King Vajra's coming to ask Markandya to teach him, but Markandya is trying to get him to think about where he should start learning. Great question. And the text goes like this. Vajra said, 
O sinless one, speak to me about the making of images of deities, so that the deity may remain always close by and have an appearance in accordance with the Shastras. Markandiya said, O Lord of men, he who does not know properly the rules of Chitra can by no means be able to discern the characteristics of images. Chitra is sculpting um, and painting sculptures. Vajra said, O propagator of the brace of Brigu, be pleased to narrate the rules of painting, as he who knows the rules of painting alone knows its characteristics in words. Markandya, without a knowledge of the art of dancing, the rules of painting are very difficult to be understood. Hence, no work of this earth, O king, should be done even with the help of these two. Something more has to be known. Vajra, please speak to me about the art of dancing and the rules of painting. You'll tell me about afterwards. For, O twice-born one, the rules of the art of dancing imply those of the art of painting. Markandya, the practice of dancing is difficult to be understood by one who is not acquainted with music. Without music, dancing cannot exist at all. Vajra, you are conversant with dharma. Tell me first about music, and then you will speak about the arts of dancing. Because when the former is well known, a man knows dancing too. Markandya, without singing, music cannot be understood. He who knows the rules of singing knows everything properly. Vajra, O best of those who support dharma, please speak to me about the art of singing, as he who knows the art of singing is the best of men and knows everything. And that's it for this week. I know last episode I promised that I'd do some social history of Kashmir. We didn't do that much of it in this episode. I'm sorry. I hereby promise to never make any promises. I hope you managed to enjoy the episode. And if you have been enjoying the episodes, please consider donating to my wife's charity, the Snehal Sidhu Patrick Memorial Fund. Details to that on the website. There's a link to the website in the description. The website hasn't been updated in a long time. I'll get to it soon. Sorry. Until next episode, have a great week and take care.